Good morning, everyone. Reading from uh, Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning we bring to a close uh, a series that we started back at the beginning of July. Who are you? We've been thinking about you know our identity as Christ followers. Uh, this sermon was actually a sermon that was supposed to happen two weeks ago, uh, but Bob graciously stepped in when I uh, had word that my father had passed away, and we, we altered the schedule a little bit. So let me take just a personal aside away from the sermon for just a moment, and, and thank you all. Uh, the cards, the emails, the words of encouragement, and Obviously, the prayers have meant a lot to me over the, the course of the past few weeks. Uh, so thank you for your, uh, just your support. Um, I appreciate it very much. My family does as well. Um, so a couple weeks ago, when I was preparing to speak on 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I had read an article uh, that said the average American changes careers seven times in the course of their life. To me, that seems impossible. I, I don't think that's accurate or they're defining careers very narrowly or, or something. But even if it's not seven times, I think we've probably all thought about changing careers at least once, right? Whether you've done it or not, you've thought about it, you've thought, man, I wish I had taken that major instead of that major. I wish I had gone down that path instead of that path. Don't want to burst your, you know, views of pastors, but we've had those thoughts too. So, 
you know, in days where it's discouraging or months where it's discouraging, you've thought, man, I coulda, woulda, shoulda. The problem is, for me, I'm stuck with an outdated political science major and two Bible theology degrees. So what, what am I qualified to do? Not much, right? I've thought, outlaw biker. Sounds good to me. I don't think my wife would let me get away with calling her my old lady, though. So that's, that's out. Uh, one time, I actually thought, you know what? Maybe the Foreign Service Corps. You know, going into the Diplomatic Corps. It would use my political science major. I'd like to see parts of the world. Some parts, not all the parts of the world. But then again, I thought, I doubt why my wife is going to follow me to Djibouti or Bangladesh. Uh, so there she goes ruining another one of my dreams. So, uh. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells us that we're all already in the Foreign Service Corps. We're all already in the Diplomatic Corps. We've been enlisted as ambassadors of Christ, as ambassadors in His kingdom. The word that's used there, ambassadors, is used in, in kind of Greek culture, both in government and civil life. In government, it represents someone who is sent under the authority of someone else to either rule or to deliver a message or to serve basically as a proxy. In civil life, an ambassador, the word that is used here, is someone who would serve as a proxy for someone to finalize or actualize a, a contract or a business deal. Uh, in the early church, same word was used to describe angels because they came and delivered a message to God's people on God's behalf. So this morning as we look at this passage, I want us to consider what it means for us to take that task seriously, that we're Christ's ambassadors. But before we get to thinking about our task, first I want to think about what that says about God. If we're Christ's ambassadors, God's ambassadors, what does that tell us about God? Then, kind of in, fit, in keeping with the sermon series, what does it tell us about us? And then we'll wrap up thinking about our task as it's given to us. So first, what does this tell us about God? It, it serves as a good reminder that God has a mission. God has a mission. That is probably the key to understanding the Bible storyline. You can organize Scripture under major themes. You could look at the theme of, say, the kingdom of God, and use that as an organizing theme of Scripture, as kind of the main plot line of Scripture. You could maybe use the concept of covenant as a major kind of organizing theme of Scripture. But I think mission is probably the best, most overarching theme in all of Scripture. The missio Dei, the mission of God. That theme carries you from Genesis 1 
all the way through the book of Revelation. The early chapters of Genesis, if you're reading the Bible uh, as an articulation of this theme, the early chapters explain to you why this mission is necessary. God created a world and it was good and harmonious and something happened. Sin intruded and it disrupted this harmony and it caused distance and discord and animosity. And as soon as that happened, God begins his redemptive work, his redemptive mission. This mission, you see it going through the Old Testament as God is working it out through the nation of Israel, through the Jewish people, preparing the world, preparing the way for the coming Messiah. This mission of God enters a new phase as Jesus steps into the scene, onto the world stage. Because it's through Christ that this mission would be accomplished. But after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, the story doesn't come to a close, right? We're still here. We're in this story. And God is using us to carry this mission forward. But it's God's mission. Sometimes we talk about our mission, our task. And I think that's fine. That's good shorthand for saying our role in God's mission, our task under God's task. It's God's mission to reconcile the world to himself, to redeem all things. It's his task. Paul says that his task is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus. He has written the, the articles of amnesty. He's drawn up the accords of peace. And it's in Christ. Because Christ was made sin. The one who knew no sin was made sin on behalf of sinners. And because of that, God is no longer counting men's sins against them. It's God's mission to redeem all things. Yes, we have a part to play in that, but it is God's mission. Which is great, because it's God's, we know it will not fail. There are plenty of things I take up that fail. Plenty of home renovation little projects that don't get seen to completion, that fall apart and then I have to call someone and say, can you come and fix this for me? We fail at our endeavors all the time. That's part of what it means to be human, is to fail. God doesn't fail. This is his mission, and he will see it through to completion. He will reconcile all things to himself. This should give us such, such hope, such hope, as we recognize that the world wasn't always this way. It wasn't supposed to be this way, and it won't always be this way. One of the things that my dad used to say over and over again, it was like a mantra in our house, this too will pass. He'd tell us that if we were going to the dentist because we had a toothache. He'd tell us if we were struggling with a, a breakup, 
this too will pass. I say it all the time to myself. As you're exhausted or you're frustrated or confused, this too will pass. I found myself over the years using that phrase more and more, not just for personal struggles, but as I look at things on the global stage. As I see a world filled with violence and conflict and school buses being bombed, you think, oh, this is awful. This too will pass. As you read stories of hatred or racism or injustice, you can say to yourself, this too will pass. As you watch lives that were lived so well end in death, the tragedy of death, we can say to ourselves, this too will pass. Because God's mission is to reconcile all things, all the disharmony, all the discord, all the decay, and yeah, even all the death. He's reconciling it all, redeeming it all, undoing all the bad. I'm certainly not advocating for some kind of escapism where we just take our hands off the wheel and say, God's going to fix it all. I don't have to do anything to push against injustice or evil. No, I hope that it encourages us in the midst of pushing against those things, that our work is not in vain. Paul says we are God's co-workers in this ministry of reconciliation. We're not doing it ourselves. It's his, his mission, but we're his co-workers. This passage reminds us that God is on a mission. It also Shifting the focus to us now, and this is a really long sentence for a sermon point. I promise you the point is not as long as the sentence would lead you to indicate, okay? We think about what it means for us to be called ambassadors. We are citizens of God's kingdom sent to live intentionally in a foreign land to further his mission. We're citizens of God's kingdom. As ambassadors, an ambassador is a citizen of the country they represent, right? I mean, we're not, uh, no nation is appointing non-citizens to go and represent their nation's interests abroad. Paul doesn't use the term citizenship in this passage, but he does say we are new creations. He points to that concept of, of rebirth. And our new birth, our, our new creatureliness, is not merely earthly. We've been born now of a heavenly birth. We're a heavenly creation in Christ. We belong, our citizenship is in the earthly kingdom, God's kingdom. That's where our hearts and our affections and our priorities come from. That's why Paul will say elsewhere, set your mind on things above. That's where your life is. That's where Christ is. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, but we reside in a foreign land. This connects with the idea that Bob was speaking of last week, that we're sojourners 
or wayfarers, aliens or strangers, or even exiles. But here's where that word that's underlined, I think, is important. We've been sent here to live intentionally. Often when we think of exiles or or pilgrims or sojourners, it's people who have had to flee or who have been displaced from their homeland. That is not the case here. We have been sent intentionally to this foreign land, this world, to represent our king, to represent our kingdom. We're not exiles in the sense that we've been displaced. We're intentional exiles. One of my favorite shows of the past maybe decade is the TV show The Americans. It just kind of wrapped up. None of my shows last very long. Lynn makes fun of that all the time. Uh, My favorite shows seem to last about a season, and then they're gone. Um, Americans had a good run, I think like seven seasons. It's the story of these two Russian agents who come to the U.S. I think they're in their early 20s when they come, and they set up life here in the United States. Uh, They start a business. uh, It's a travel agency. They have kids. They raise their kids. they, They live in a neighborhood. They do the normal American thing. In a way, they were exiles from their homeland, Mother Russia. But they hadn't been displaced. They had come intentionally. That's like our situation. Except that we're not doing it in secret. We're not keeping our identity under wraps. We're sent here intentionally to advocate for to appeal, to represent our kingdom, the kingdom of God and our sovereign, Jesus Christ. We're sent to live intentionally. Here at ECC, we talk about ourselves being a receiving, equipping, and sending church. There's definitely seasons of our life where we're sending out scores of people, and they, they graduate, they finish their PhDs, and they move away to different parts of the country, different parts of the world. That's part of what our identity is. But even beyond that, we understand that we're sending people every week. Every week out into the, the foreign land to represent the kingdom of God. We're sending people onto the campus. We're sending people into their high schools, into the workplace, into their neighborhoods, into their homes to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And the church, I think, properly understood is not just a place of spiritual retreat where we hide from the, the horrors of the world. It's a place where we, we come and we taste heavenly realities where we come and and get our priorities aligned to kingdom priorities, where we immerse ourselves in the values, in the values of our kingdom. And then we go back out, having been changed, having been transformed, to represent those things to the world. We come and we worship. We come and we're transformed and we're sent That's how the church is supposed to work. Because we're ambassadors. The church isn't a a fortress 
It's an embassy that gathers ambassadors and then sends them back out to do their mission. So that's what it says about us. It reminds us that God is a God who has a mission and that we're citizens of, a king, of the kingdom of God living in a foreign land, living intentionally. And about our task, it reminds us that everything we say and everything we do represents our sovereign, represents our king. Ambassadors don't go to a foreign land to represent their own interests or even the interests of kind of the diplomatic core. They go to represent their kingdom, their nation, their sovereign. Paul says in this passage, we're not trying to commend ourselves. No, we're commending God in Christ. We do that with our lives and with our words. Uh, this summer, I had one of the most fun experiences as a baseball coach I've ever had. It was not so much fun for the players on the team, but I just got to sit and watch. So it was great for me. The coach came to practice and he was furious. He was furious. He set up two kids on each base. So if this is second base, there's a kid here, and then there's another kid here. And they spent five minutes just diving back to the base, getting up, taking a lead, diving back to base, getting up, taking a lead, diving back to base. Five minutes. And the whole time they were doing that, they were saying, Yes, sir. No, sir. Thank you, sir. Oh, what the coach didn't quite realize at the time, that it hadn't rained for weeks. The ground was hard as a rock, and they were all bloody by the end of this, you know, scraped up knees and elbows. But that wasn't even the end of it. He then marched them all to home plate, and they had to sprint the bases, I don't know how many, ten times maybe, sprint the bases. And the whole time they were sprinting the bases... They were chanting, I am only 14. My opinion does not matter. Only the opinion of my coaches, the umpires, and my parents matter. It was brutal. I think he had watched Full Metal Jacket the night before or something like that. The only thing he was missing is they weren't doing this with their baseball bats as they were running. But Why was he so furious? Because they had represented the team poorly. Not in how they played, but in their actions. A few of the players, and I will absolve my son of any guilt in this, a few of the players were arguing with umpires throughout the whole game. And at the end of the game, a couple of the players refused to shake the opponent's coach's hand. It had been a heated game, but there was no excuse for that. And he said, you wear a name on the front of your jersey. You represent that team. And you have a name on the back of your jersey. You represent your family with how you act. And they had acted poorly. That was so much fun. Uh, (laughs) We represent our king with our actions. Not just when we think the world is watching, but all the time. And how we deal with 
students, co-workers, employees, employers, neighbors, and our attitudes and our actions, we represent Christ. Whether you're a kid, you represent Christ in how you talk to your parents. Parents, how you parent your kids, you're representing Christ to the world. We do it with our actions. We also do it with our our words. Paul says, we try to persuade others. We use words to do that. That's how you persuade someone. Words backed up by a life lived well. We make our appeal to others, Paul says. We implore you. As ambassadors, it's not just about our life. It's the message also that we carry to the world. Actions and words, life and message, go hand in hand because we're ambassadors for Christ. Uh, I think this has two important implications or applications for us. Uh, First, as ambassadors who have a message to carry to the world, that God is reconciling the world to himself in Jesus Christ, not counting men's sins against them. That's the message we carry. As ambassadors who carry that message, we do not have the liberty to change the message. We just don't. That causes somewhat of a tension because we live in a world that is enamored with the new with the novel, with the innovative, and we have a message that is 2,000 years old, and it doesn't change, and it won't change. We just keep passing the message on. Be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Trust Christ. That pushes against so much in our culture that wants, again, new and innovative, especially in the academy that demands originality. And that that desire for original and new and novel can creep in. But the church isn't supposed to tweak its message to be new and novel. It's supposed to be faithful. Charles Hodge was the president of Princeton Seminary for a good part of the 19th century. And he famously said... No new idea has been conceived or taught at Princeton in the last 200 years. He was bragging about that because he understood that the seminary as a servant of the church wasn't supposed to be new and novel and creative, but to faithfully hand the message on. Now there's a tension there between the academy and the church, and I'm not going to dive into that. I'm talking to the church. We have a message that we can't change, and we cannot add to it. Can you imagine an ambassador saying, well, here's the terms of the treaty, but I'm going to add a rider here, free coffee for life, something like that. We don't get to add to the message, but one of the uncomfortable truths of our past is how often the church has added to the gospel. 
If you've ever seen pictures from the, the early missions movement, you see these really curious things. Uh, you see people in the, the jungles of Africa or small villages in China wearing top hats. Hey, what in the world is going on with there? That's because the missionaries who did so much good in bringing the gospel so often added to the gospel. And they became agents of cultural imperialism as they spread along with the gospel, kind of embedded in the gospel, Western European culture. And they became so enmeshed that it was hard to tell the difference between the two at times. Here in the U.S., sometimes kind of moors get added to the gospel. They usually have kind of a southern middle-class flavor to the moors that get added to the gospel. And so it's be reconciled to God and don't smoke, don't chew, don't hang out with girls who do. Don't go to dances. Don't go to the theater. I think I cut out there because someone likes playing cards. Uh, I grew up in that. I wasn't allowed to go to junior high and high school dances because Christians don't do those things. We have to be very careful not to add to the gospel. Nowadays, we have to be very careful not to add political ideologies to the gospel. It it is not be reconciled to God and toe the party line. It is simply not. As ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we cannot change the message or add to it. That's the first application. We have a message. We cannot alter it. We just simply, faithfully herald it. The second Part of the task of an ambassador is to undo negative perceptions that people might have of your king, of your kingdom. I'm going to pick on the French here, okay? If you're French, I'm sorry. If you're in a French ambassador, you might have to push against the idea that all the French people are rude. If you're a U.S. ambassador, you might have to push against the idea that all Americans are loud and obnoxious. You have to push against negative perceptions. Well, we have to do that too. On behalf of our king, push against negative stereotypes. Sometimes we've earned. And say, no, 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 that's our fault. That's not our king. Uh, As evangelicals, we have to push against stereotypes and misconceptions that people foist on our kingdom and our king. If you're in the academy, one of the stereotypes is that evangelicals aren't necessarily the most careful of thinkers. And as a student or as a faculty member, it's part of your role as an ambassador of Christ to push against that. To show that we can be thoughtful. To show that we can be introspective. 
in our world at large. One of the stereotypes that we have as evangelicals is that we're not very compassionate. We're not very loving. It's part of our calling to push against that and say, no, we represent the most compassionate, the most loving of kings. If you're not seeing that in us, it's our failing, not his. We push against undue negative perceptions. Being an ambassador is going to look really different depending on your context. If you're a U.S. ambassador to China, it's going to look different than being a U.S. ambassador to England, right? If you're an ambassador to the university, it's going to look different than how you're an ambassador to your neighborhood. I think we all have to be very careful that we don't judge other people and how they fulfill their calling as an ambassador. It might not look how, like how you do it. But as we step into a, a new academic year with new opportunities, let's commit to prayerfully and intentionally think about how we represent Christ to our world. Before the first service, someone asked, how can I pray for you during the services? I said, please pray. But as I talk about the responsibility of being an ambassador, it's not coming across as though I'm putting people on a guilt trip. I will be the first to admit I often fail as an ambassador. My actions don't always reflect well on my king. I don't always speak when I ought to. I don't want to put you on a guilt trip. And in fact, I don't even want to speak as much about the responsibility we have to be ambassadors. Instead, consider the privilege we have of being ambassadors. Paul doesn't say in this passage, we're duty-bound to go and spread the message and take up this ministry of reconciliation. He says, Christ's love compels us. It is a privilege. We're moved by his love for us and our love for him. Consider the privilege we have of serving Christ's kingdom as his ambassadors. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the calling that we have. And even more, we're thankful that you have not left us to our own resources to fulfill this calling. It is your mission, and you've given us everything we need to be faithful ambassadors for you. You've left us with the church to resource us, to encourage us, to transform us. And even more importantly, you've left us your spirit who indwells us to guide us and even to give us the words to represent you well. Father, we pray that you would find us faithful in this. In Jesus' precious name, amen.